Bible, you can go ahead and open up to, I don't know, take your pick. I've got three verses up there on the screen because uh, this is sort of a hodgepodge this morning of thought coming together from different places in the scriptures. I'd say go ahead and, and, and begin with Colossians 4, 17, because that's where I'm going to begin this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. You can use that Bible, and, and you can even take it with you if you don't own a Bible or the translation that you happen to have is difficult to track with. Um, as, as you're opening up to Colossians 4, 17, as Jason mentioned, uh, we closed out the Ecclesiastes series last Sunday. We're going to jump into the Sermon on the Mount series next week. Uh, that makes this an in-between Sunday, one of those standalone sermon Sundays. Uh, there's some who uh, might be inclined to write off a week like this, being that it's a holiday weekend and that it's a, a week between two sermon series. Maybe grab an old sermon from years back, doctor up, update the illustrations, give it a little bit of a facelift and repackage it for the church preach on something compelling, but maybe not too compelling because you don't want to um, speak of something that might actually impact the direction of the church on a day when the vast majority of the church may not even be in-house. And yet, my plan this morning is this. I'm going to preach on, on something that I think could function as a reset button for our entire church on one of the most sparsely attended Sundays of the entire church calendar. Um, not a part of a vision series, just a standalone sermon. We're going to see what God does with it Colossians 4.17, you might be wondering if you've already read that verse, why in the world are we looking at Colossians 4.17 of all the places we could go in the Bible? Well, once a month, I meet with, um, with other Acts 29 lead pastors for a sort of cohort fellowship, um, and, and the purpose of that gathering is really to create space for transparency, to talk to others who are in similar leadership roles uh, about some of the joys and challenges of pastoral ministry, a culture of transparency that the hope would be would lead to a culture of longevity, that we would all be pastoring, as one of my friends says, long enough to someday hate the music in our very own churches. And so, as we gathered a few weeks ago, the pastor who was facilitating that particular gathering led us to Colossians 4.17, a verse that... Um, most of us have probably not sat with and, and dwelt upon deeply in our quiet times as it sits in the final greeting section of Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. If you pick it up, going back to verse 12 of chapter four of Colossians, Paul says this, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord." When we read those verses aloud in our lead pastor's gathering, um, we were asked on the basis of verse 17, what does it look like for you personally to fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord? Certainly an appropriate question to ask a room full of pastors, right? We don't know a lot about Archippus, um, but clearly God had given him a ministry, had called him to something in terms of being a minister of the gospel. Um, it's arguably an appropriate question for any of us in this room to ask, really. 
What does it look like for you to fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord? Now, now here's the thing. It certainly would have been clear to Archippus what Paul meant when he used that phrase, that call to fulfill the ministry. But for the rest of us, it's less than clear, right? There are a couple of ways that you can take that. Perhaps Paul was talking about finishing the race. Perhaps this was a call to perseverance, to persevere as a minister of the gospel to the end, to not disqualify himself, to not burn out, to not give up and quit after just a few years in ministry. That was most definitely the heart behind the question as we were gathered together and presented it as lead pastors, the intention being that we, we still be doing this thing when we're old and gray. But there's another way to understand the phrase, fulfill the ministry, which is to understand it not so much as a, a call to perseverance as a minister of the gospel, but rather as a call to see the ministry itself to its consummate end. That's where my mind went when I read that verse. When I read the words, fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord, the following question came to my mind. What is the end goal? What is the aim? What is the chief end of my life's investment as a pastor? So that to fall short of that aim would be to fall short of the fulfillment of the ministry that I've received in the Lord. And my answer to that question, as I looked around at this room full of men, the aim, the chief end of the investment of my life as a pastor is this, that God be increasingly glorified in you as you are increasingly satisfied in him. That was my answer to the question. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That statement, if you're not familiar with it, is one that summarizes the philosophy of the Christian life known as Christian hedonism. That phrase coined by a pastor by the name of John Piper in his 1986 book entitled Desiring God. Some of you have read that book. Some of you haven't and still perhaps are familiar with the idea itself. It's most certainly impacted my understanding of Christianity as well as my aim as a pastor. We'll get into that in just a second. But, but so as not to assume anything, let me begin with, with what I would consider an incredibly abbreviated unpacking of what this idea of, of Christian hedonism actually is. And if you find my explanation to be lacking, you probably will, maybe leaving with more questions than answers this morning. I would commend you to grab a copy of Desiring God. Go to desiringgod.org and type in Christian hedonism in the search box. I promise you will get more than you could possibly want to read through. But again, my incredibly brief unpacking of this idea. Question one of the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer to that question according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, we exist to magnify God and to delight in God. The, the glorifying, the magnifying makes a lot of sense, right? Um, look no further than passages like 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Right? Very few of us would push back on the idea that we exist to bring God glory. Very few of us would say, I, I don't know about this whole God glorifying aspect of the Christian life. I'm not sure I'm sold on that. Right? The real question is, does our glorifying God because it makes us happy, does that ruin the goodness of the act? Philosophers like, um, like Immanuel Kant said yes, believing that, that our desires, your desires, my desires, they're not to be trusted and that rather duty should inform morality more so than to delight. So that if you were to do something um, 
for the sake of God and to do it with any sort of happiness welling up in your heart. There's something troublesome about that. John Piper came along standing on the shoulders of theological giants and said, abundant joy and total commitment to the glory of God have to go together in some way. And so he argued, maybe it's not that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Rather, maybe it's that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Meaning that God's glory and our joy are not opposites. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. If you've tracked with with Piper at all along the way, you've maybe heard his example where he talks about um, showing up at the front door to take his wife on a date with flowers in hand, and his wife says, Johnny, why, why, why did you? What made you want to do this? And, and his response was, nothing makes me happier than to take you out tonight and to be with you, to spend time with you. And that none of us would go in response to that, nothing makes you happier, you selfish jerk, but rather that there's something about the happiness, the delighting in the other person that actually honors, that, that magnifies, that makes much of that other person. So that, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, those words are not at odds with verses like Psalm 16, 11. You, God, make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That when we see God as the supremely valuable treasure that he really is, when we run to him as the fountain of living water, when we experience the fullness of joy found in his presence, that that's when God is truly most glorified. So that the more that we're able to find true joy in God, the more we will bring God glory and honor and fulfill our purpose in both life and death. Now, let me bring those two ideas together in one passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, and Psalm 16, 11. They collide with each other in Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, Paul says this. He says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now and always, Christ will be honored in my body. Christ will be magnified, glorified, whether by life or by death. For me, uh, for to me, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. In other words, Paul says, I have Great hope and expectation that Jesus will be magnified, that he will be glorified in my living and my dying. And the reason that Jesus will be magnified, glorified in my living and my dying is this, that Jesus is more satisfying to me than anything this world, this universe has to offer. So that Paul says, I'm satisfied in him in my living to live as Christ, he's my treasure, and I'm satisfied in him in my dying because he's my gain in death. In other words, Christ being glorified in Paul is one and the same with Paul being satisfied, supremely satisfied in Christ. That the human desire for happiness is not sinful. It's not some wicked impulse. The trouble is not that our desires are too strong. The problem is that our desires are oftentimes far too weak. Very famous 
quote, C.S. Lewis in his work, The Weight of Glory, he says it this way. He says, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit, Lewis says, that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem, Lewis says, that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, Lewis says. Or as Piper himself would say, Our problem is not big desires, but small desires for big things, namely God. So that the goal of Christianity is not to put passion to death. It's not to trade passion and desire for passionless indifference. The hope of true joy is not found in the suppressing of our affections. We need our affections continually awakened to the superior joy found in Jesus. It's what Thomas Chalmers referred to as the expulsive power of a new affection, a miracle that happens over and over again in the hearts of the saints. It's the daily declaration, God, I I beg you to help me see mud pies for what they are, fleeting lesser pleasures, and in contrast, help me to see eternal pleasures for what they are. Another way we could say it is to say that our greatest joy problem is our failure to treasure God. So that our greatest need is to be continually awakened to his supreme beauty, his supreme worth. To quote the great philosopher Blaise Pascal, he once said this, There once was in man a true happiness of which now remain to him only the mark and empty trace which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. In other words, chasing after the next thing. But, he says, these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. So that we must pursue happiness in God if we're to be truly and ultimately satisfied. And we must pursue happiness in God if he is to be truly and ultimately glorified in us. It's written all over the the pages of the Psalms. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Psalm 34, 8. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste. Psalm 43, 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. When C.S. Lewis read through the Psalms over the course of his life, he eventually came to the conclusion that God in the Psalms is described as, quote, the all-satisfying object, capital O. So what I'm contending for here is not the using of God as a means to worldly happiness, nor the making a God out of happiness itself, but rather... Again, to quote Piper, we're talking about making God our God by seeking after the greatest pleasure, namely pleasure in him. Now, you might be asking yourself at this point, how is this a reset button for us as a church? 
particularly if you've been around for, for any significant period of time. We, we talk in this language all the time around here, right? I mean, you could argue that I did repackage an old sermon on a holiday weekend. Like, whether it be praying that God would get the glory and we would get the joy, or in the language of seeing and savoring Jesus Christ, you hear that all the time around here, or the many invitation, uh, invitations to come to the one who can fulfill your, your every uh, longing of your soul, the very first sermon of 2019 was entitled, Going to God, Our Exceeding Joy, which was a call to fight to see and savor God, to help each other cry out with the psalmist, even now you, O Lord, are my exceeding joy. Or how about the recent study of Ecclesiastes, a book that, as I said throughout that series, drives us to God above the sun, the greatest source of meaning and happiness in all the universe. The language and theology of, of Christian hedonism is, is alive and well throughout the pages of Scripture and, and throughout and within this church. But, but here's the danger, and this is where the reset button, I think, comes into play, and this is scary. It's possible, it's very possible, to be well-versed in the Scriptures and not be delighting in God. It's very possible to be incredibly gospel fluent and not be delighting in God. It's possible to embrace the theology of Christian hedonism and not be delighting in God. And here's how I know it to be true. Because it happened to me earlier this very summer. I'm preaching from my own experience in a sense here. I've never felt more well-versed in the scriptures than I do this day having studied the Bible to preach the Bible as a minister of the gospel, sitting in commentary after commentary after commentary. I've never felt more gospel fluent than I do now. I could tell you all about my, my root idols and functional saviors. Could probably diagnose yours in a meaningful conversation or two. Don't let that scare you from hanging out with me. Got a pretty good grasp on how the gospel speaks into many situations and struggles in everyday living, more so now than ever before, I feel like I could probably write a dissertation on Christian hedonism, being well-versed in the theology of it, and yet I would describe the earlier days of summer 2019 as relatively absent of delight in God. I'm not sure that I could quite yet pinpoint what was driving it, I could take some stabs at that, but, but it would be a little bit of a guessing game at this point because it's so recent. That's part of why I wanna share it with you because it's not something that I've since triumphed over from 10 years past, but rather it's, it's very, very recent in the rearview mirror of my own Christian experience. I wasn't satisfied in God. I wasn't happy in God. Now, thankfully, that, that season wasn't long-lasting because God used people in my life who were committed to the same chief end to help me see it, to help me work through it. But it happened nonetheless. And my guess would be, if it happened to me, perhaps it's happened to you. Maybe it's even happening to you right now. I mean, there, there's a reason that, that Piper followed up his book, Desiring God, with a second book entitled, When I Don't Desire God. Because enough people read the first book and became incredibly frustrated with the fact that they weren't happy in God and wondered, what do I do with that? And so the sequel came out. There are enough of us who, who battle with seasons of drought who find that we're not 
truly happy in God. We're not delighting in God. My guess is that there are some very biblically astute people in this room right now who are not presently delighting in God, maybe even leading a Bible study or two. My guess is that there's some very gospel-fluent people in this room who are not presently delighting in God, able to, to talk in circles about your root idols and functional forms of righteousness, well-versed in how to speak the good news of Jesus into the everyday situations and struggles of life, including your own life, meaning that you're, you're great at preaching the gospel to yourself. You know how to do that, and yet you're not happy in him. Tony Ranke, in his book, The Joy Project, says this, he says, the greatest hazard we face is not intellectual atheism, denying that God exists. Our most desperate problem is affectional atheism. Refusing to believe God is the object of our greatest and most enduring joy. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not arguing that being well-versed in the scriptures is troublesome. It's a beautiful thing. I'm not arguing that growing in gospel fluency is problematic. It's a beautiful thing. We're, we're aiming toward all of those things as a church. Embracing and growing in an understanding of the theology of Christian hedonism. Beautiful thing. But none of those things, to come back to Colossians 4, 17, is the fulfillment of the ministry, the chief aim, the end goal. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So that my aim as a pastor is that we all be a people who are happy in God who are glad in God, who delight in God, who find our joy in God, that we would be a people who pursue happiness to the fullest extent, namely in the God who designed us to be happy in him. Knowing that the happier, the gladder, the more satisfied we are in him, the more honored, the more magnified, the more glorified he is in us. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture, Matthew 13, 44, Many of you know it well. The kingdom of heaven, it's like treasure, Jesus says, hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And you just picture it. On this journey, a man happens upon a treasure hidden in a field, a treasure representing King Jesus and his kingdom and his kingly rule. When you see the phrase kingdom of heaven, you don't have a kingdom without a king, right? In fact, the very character of the kingdom is a representation of the king who rules it, who reigns over it. So that the treasure in this parable is King Jesus and his kingdom and his kingly rule. You have a man who, for, for God only knows how long, has been groping for something to satisfy his heart, just like the author of Ecclesiastes, grabbing after this thing and that thing. Am I ever gonna find it? True happiness, true joy, true delight. It sickens me to think that I might not find it because I was made for this. And then Jesus, he sees him for who he truly is. He cries out, isn't he glorious? Isn't he supremely valuable? Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he compellingly beautiful? This crucified and resurrected Savior and King who's made a way for me to be restored to God and his eternal glorious good kingdom. And then we're told that he begrudgingly sells everything that he has right out of duty. Wrong! We're told that in his joy, he sells everything he has in order to buy that field. He's been given a glimpse of the most supremely valuable treasure in all of the world, and all of a sudden, everything else looks like a trash heap in comparison. 
He's happy to sell everything he has to obtain that treasure in his joy. So that I think it's safe to argue that no one grumbles his or her way into the kingdom of God. If you're not a Christian, my prayer for you is that that you would come face to face with the supreme worth of God in Jesus Christ and that your heart would leap from your chest as you drink from the true fountain of everlasting joy in him. And if you are a Christian, if you're like me, maybe a little bit more difficult to pinpoint with exact precision the moment that you became a Christian, somewhere along the way you realized that infinite joy was found in in Jesus, you got a glimpse of his beauty for the first time. You got a glimpse of his glory. You got a glimpse of his worth, and your heart was happy to delight in him. Let me say this this morning. If, you're, if your heart's delight in God is flickering presently, perhaps even having grown cold, I, I don't have six steps to delight in God for you this morning. Um, I would commend to you the book, When I Don't Desire God. Uh, if, you, if you want to read through some bullet points on that, that's not the purpose of this morning's sermon. That would be a, a whole other sermon. The point of this morning is, is for us to have a bit of a heart diagnostic, and yet at the same time, I would ask you to do two things. One, to talk, about, uh, to, talk to God about where you are, to confess to him that you're not happy in him, He's big enough to handle that. You know that, right? Like when you read through the scriptures, there are some honest prayers. You should read through the Psalms. God's big enough to handle it, and he cares for you deeply. And he's very passionate about his glory so much that he cares that you're happy in him. And secondly, I would say, tell a trusted brother or sister in Christ, someone that you know will fight for you and with you with the aim that you might be happy in God. When I say that this morning is a bit of a reset, it's that my, my hope and my prayer is that affectional atheism not get the best of us. My hope and my prayer would be that, that we not grow in our knowledge of the scriptures and our fluency in the gospel only to fall short of happiness in God. My prayer would be that our biblical literacy and our gospel fluency lead us to taste and see that God is good that we would run to him as the fountain of living water, that this is where all this would lead, that we would experience the fullness of joy found in God's presence, that that's where all of this would lead, all of the Bible study, all of the gospel fluency growth and pointing each other to the gospel, that, that it would lead to this fullness of joy, this happiness in God, knowing that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him.